We, the members of the secret order of alchemical actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. Take it away, Luke. Hello, and welcome to Occult Confessions on a special interview episode. Joining us today are Judas and Magnolia, world-traveling husband and wife team of entertainers featuring escape artist stunts, fire, music, and more. And you are listening to the dulcet tones of Luke Kinneman, our producer, Discordia. Me, my name is Dr. Rob C. Thompson, your supreme hierophant of the secret order of alchemical actors. Now I have a few questions for Judas and or Magnolia about that bio you just gave, Luke. Is it all right if I uh, go ahead and interrogate a bit here? <laughs> Now, let me start with this and more. <laughs> what is and what's more? The, what's in there? What happens in the more? Well, we do a few things in the more. We do theatrical seances, so we reenact seances from the end of the 1800s. We also do mind reading shows, uh, face painting, balloon animals, and that kind of thing. <laughs> um, two of those things I mentioned probably apply to this show more than the. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> all right, and now. that would be the face painting in blue. Exactly. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's the right. show we're on, right? Yep. Yep. That's all we talk about on this show is face painting and balloon animals. All right, now fire. <laughs> in what context is there fire? Uh, yes, and so uh, <laughs> we we actually incorporate fire into uh, many of our shows. Um, I think currently the festival that we're at i am using uh, fire fans i'm spinning a fire hoop and i have a fire levy wand i think that's all we have out here right now what many else? of our stage performances start out with magnolia singing in latin and dancing with fire mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's right you need that hook because you know that escape artist is not always gonna get them <laughs> <laughs> and to make sure you're far enough away from the curtains uh, I mean, you know, it just makes things more exciting, really. <laughs> and, uh, Whatever I set on fire, as long as I say, I meant to do that, it's usually fine. The audience is right there with us. So as she's are... on stage dancing with fire, I'm normally standing beside the audience. And whoever I'm standing next to, I always lean over and say, two weeks ago, she burned the stage down. <laughs> And they always look at me and say, really? And before I can answer, I go on stage. <laughs> you got to keep them on their toes. That's what we're here for. So where have you been most recently? Where are you headed to next? Talk about the travel a little bit. Well, right now we're at the Sterling Renaissance Festival in New York. It sits on the Great Lakes. It's a beautiful show. It's been around for decades and decades. After this, we will drive to Ohio, get ready to do the Ohio Renaissance Festival. I'll fly over to Utah, do a little show in Utah for a little bit. And we'll return to Ohio and do its nine-week run. So if folks are at a Renaissance Festival, they might as well check and see if you're going to be there. There's a good chance we'll be there. We perform <laughs> at festivals across the country, everywhere from Utah to New York and places in between. That's fantastic. All right. So uh, the today's topic, though, uh, you're, you're both very interested in Houdini, the history of Houdini. We are, we are, but I thought we were talking about balloon animals. So we were <laughs> <laughs> Surprise. Houdini did make a mean balloon animal, as, as, <laughs> as I recall. Yes. So I uh, actually did research in Houdini's actual library. Uh, oh, did you? Not uh, the building, okay. per se, uh, but Houdini's full collection of spiritualist 
and Occult Books was donated to the United States Library of Congress, which is where I did a lot of my work. So uh, I have had the privilege of actually reading some of Houdini's books, uh, I guess that the man himself at one point had held. So I'm very excited to talk about this topic with you. Um, so tell us a little bit about Houdini. Well, first I want to start with a little Houdini story regarding his stuff. Oh, sure. So he was very secretive, and he wouldn't let anybody look through his books or his props while he was alive, obviously. One story takes place in St. Louis. He was taking a train through St. Louis. He was going to do a show out uh, west somewhere, and the train breaks down in the St. Louis station. So they want him to get off, get on another train, and go. Uh, but they want him to be separated from his props. He was very secretive. He didn't want anybody looking through his stuff, figuring out how he did things. So instead of going onto another train, he went in front of the broken down train and grabbed a hold of the tracks and refused to let go so that they couldn't move the train <laughs> until the train was repaired. <laughs> and they got workers for the train station to come out to try to pull him off. One of his claims to fame was that he was the strongest man in the world. And this might be an instance of that coming into case because they had upwards of a dozen men trying to pull him free from the tracks <laughs> and they couldn't budge Houdini. So they just let him stay there until they repaired the train. Then he got back on his original train so he wouldn't be separated from his equipment. Wow. Wow. What was in there? What did he, I've read these books. What was in there he didn't want people to see? <laughs> well, you know, we think about him as an escape artist, an illusionist, but he was also an incredible creator. A lot of the stage illusions that you see at modern magic shows were created by Harry Houdini. Um, he was an inventor of magic where a lot of magicians recreate magic or do illusions that have been performed for decades, Houdini created a lot of items. Um, so no other magicians knew how they were done, and people were desperate to rip him off. Do you guys use any of Houdini's illusions? We have, in fact. So uh, one, of, one of the Houdini uh, pieces that we have done was actually something that Harry and Bess performed together early in their career. They were also a husband and wife team. Uh, of performers, and uh, they did the metamorphosis. And uh, I love that that they the the way that they uh, advertised this spectacle was that they would do the metamorphosis in the twinkle of an eye. They would perform this in just three seconds. And the hubs and I did this for years. And uh, one of the things that we've been very proud of is that we were able to get our metamorphosis down to two seconds. And let me explain the metamorphosis. The, so the metamorphosis is not an illusion created by um, Houdini. It was done before him, but he did it particularly well, him and Bess. Houdini would get mm, put in kind of chains and locks and shackles and then locked inside of a wooden trunk. And Bess would stand on top of the trunk. She would pick up a screen or a sheet. She would lift it up above her head and she would drop it. And when she dropped it, suddenly Houdini would be standing on top of the box, free of all the shackles. He would hop off the box, unlock it, open it up, and in the box would be Bess wrapped up in chains. That's pretty cool. Would you be amazed, Luke? Oh, I'd be amazed, maybe a little terrified. <laughs> <laughs> and aside from that, we also do underwater stunts um, that were popularized by Houdini and that kind of thing. Yeah, That man. would actually genuinely terrify me. Do it uh, four times a day, every Saturday and Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> four times the terror. <laughs> so, I, I mean, you know our show. We don't like to assume that anybody knows anything you know, going into a topic. Tell us a little bit about who Houdini was. 
Sure. So uh, where to start? Um, so if we start from the very beginning, so uh, Houdini was uh, actually born as Eric Weiss. Uh, he was born to uh, Rabbi Samuel Weiss and his wife, Cecilia. Uh, in Budapest, Hungary, and that was in 1874. He was born on March 24th. Um, and so Rabbi Weiss, uh, his his father, actually uh, immigrated to Wisconsin. Uh, he led a small reform congregation. Um, and at age nine, uh, or hold on, let, let me back up a little bit there. Now, I think something to to make clear Houdini was a lot of things. Um, And we want to pose the picture here because it's going to become important later for the conversation. He was very close to his mother. Uh, His father died earlier on and his father was sort of always an aloof figure in his life. Mm. But um, Houdini was particularly close to his mother. Um, His father never learned English and there was always kind of a um, linguistic barrier Mm-hmm. between between Houdini and his dad. So that might have been part of why there, there wasn't a close bond. Um, so that's his early life. Uh, mo- moves to the United States. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. pretty early on, performance starts. He, likes, mm-hmm. he joins like a local children's circus with his brother. Mm-hmm. And I believe his At first tagline was something like um, the Prince of the Air because he originally did trapeze. Yeah. Eric, Prince of the Air. Uh, And then at a pretty young age, he takes on this this name, Houdini. And that is an homage to actually a a very famous magician, um, someone who's actually considered by many to be a a father of modern magic as we know it today. And this person was French. Uh, His name was Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin. Uh, but it's the second part of his hyphenated last name is spelled H-O-U-D-I-N. So uh, to us, it would kind of look like Houdin or Howden. Um, and Eric, uh, at a young age, had learned that if you put an I on the end of a name, it's it's like uh, kind of um taking that name but but like as an homage right like as out of respect to that person so he took on the name Houdini uh as an homage to his uh, to his uh not not quite mentor but the this magician that he looked up to so much and we're talking about Houdini a lot as a magician here but he was so many things for his life like he was a circus performer a movie star a pilot yeah. a medical test subject the son of immigrants <laughs> yeah. and most of all and i think it's going to be important for the conversation later he was a master of self-promotion it's kind of hard looking through a lens of history to figure out exactly what houdini believed as opposed to what houdini promoted himself to believe he would have definitely had a podcast if he was alive today <laughs> he would have had what he was a cultural phenomenon and he yeah. tried to grip the american imagination and hold on to it as tight as he could in whatever form that was and it throughout the decades that form changed as as forms of media rose and fell whatever the new one was he would put his claws in it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's sweet, sweet publicity. <laughs> That's irrelevant, y'all. Well, I mean, part of what's interesting about Robert Houdin to me is I've read his books. Robert Houdin recorded how he did some of his illusions at the end of his life. So I imagine Houdini just picking up these books and saying, oh, yeah, I could do that. 
I yes. can sell this to people. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I believe it was the metamorphosis, one of those in particular that was done by Houdin mm-hmm. that uh, Houdini picked up. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, he was also very interested, this uh, Houdin, in um, de- debunking some of the mediumship, uh, which we'll get to later. But uh, so it took, took some t- lots of inspiration, I think, from from this guy. Anyhow, so carry on. Uh, then what happens? <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's going to be a question of how much detail of his life do you yeah. want? So we can kind of go like mm, a few years by few years. We can give you major points. How would you like to um, digest Houdini here? Well, I mean, we want to get into the mediumship and, and that whole situation with mom and and uh, and the okay. you know, that conversation. But so, before we do, maybe let's just end his life. <laughs> how does he die? <laughs> <laughs> well, somewhere in the middle there, he's going to meet his, his wife, Bess. That's an important part. Okay. Uh, that happens before the passing of his mother. As you mentioned, the passing of his mother is going to be a big turning point. He's going to meet uh, Sir Conan Arthur Doyle and Lady Doyle. That's going to also be another big change. But yeah. let's skip to the end. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he died on Halloween, and that's a, a remarkable thing for a couple of reasons. First, magicians always mark it at, with Houdini seances, um, but it was also prophesized by a New York medium that he was in a feud with that he would pass away on Halloween. Wow. Now, he was at a university. He would tour universities giving shows. A lot of performers still do that today. Um, and as I mentioned before, he marked himself as the strongest man in the world. And one of the ways he would do that would be by finding the largest man in the audience, inviting that man on stage. Then Houdini would rip his shirt off and he would flex. He would uh, hold his hands above his head and he would flex his, his abs. And he would invite whoever the man was he got up on stage to just wail on his stomach, to punch him in the stomach. And Houdini would laugh and he'd send the man away and it would have no effect. As one of his uh, hallmarks that he's the strongest man in the world. Now he's doing this show at a university and he has a fan come up um, backstage, backstage mm-hmm. to, to have an interview with him. And Houdini's uh, sitting in a chair, if the, if the record goes right. And the young man punches Houdini in the stomach. So he'd seen it done during a show before. And Houdini's not ready, so he hadn't, he hadn't flexed. Uh, he wasn't ready to take a blow like that. And he had probably already possessed an uh, inflamed appendix, uh, unbeknownst to him. This blow would have caused the appendix to rupture. So the show goes on. Houdini's in pain. He goes out on stage. He's performing the, uh, the illusions, and he collapses on stage. He passes out from the pain. His stage manager comes out and picks him back up and like wakes him up. And Houdini continues on. He passes out again, and the stage manager comes, picks him up. He finishes up the illusion before uh, mid-curtain, and during intermission, once again, falls over. He's roused back to consciousness, finishes up the show, and then he's rushed to the hospital. And by the time he's arrived at the hospital, uh, this ruptured appendix has gone septic, and it's too late. He's, yeah, he can't be saved. Wow. And that's how we lose Houdini. So his stage manager kind of killed him. Uh, <laughs> Look, people, the show must go on. My goodness. Like one of those he had enough will that if he wanted to stop, he would have. Um, Like a dance mom propping him up and sending him out there again. Come on, (laughs) Sally. What are you doing? No more tears. Uh, He woke him up, but if Houdini wanted to stop, Houdini would have stopped. Yeah, he wanted to carry on do the show. Yeah, I hear that. I hear that. Um, he was so afraid of his reputation being ruined throughout his entire life. He was so afraid somebody would have an escape that he couldn't get out of. Um, mm-hmm. And him claiming to be the strongest man in the world and not able to continue, 
he would have seen that as an affront to this image that he had so thoroughly crafted. Mm-hmm. And the punches weren't an illusion when he did them on stage. Were no, they? no, they were real. Oh. Yeah. Um, you know, there's techniques so that it didn't hurt. Yeah. Oh. Or at least he, between, much. Uh, yeah, between acting and a technique so it didn't do any damage, mm-hmm. uh, he was fine. The punches were real, though. That's wild. My goodness. Um, for example, a little side note here. You know, people had a lot of patience during these shows, a lot more patience than they have for a stage show now. So when Houdini would be put in shackles and chains and handcuffs, he would usually step into a booth where he couldn't be seen. And the orchestra would start playing music. And this might go on for 45 minutes. The audience just watching a booth. What? Yes. Not. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Houdini wouldn't fail. Um, there was accounts of him stepping back on stage, dripping with blood, where he had ripped these things off of him. Yeah, oh. and that, and you know, people would just go wild for that. But I mean, these yeah, these audiences would stick around for an hour or more, and uh, it's it's so interesting for me to read about the accounts of some of these performances, because when we are on stage. And he generally is not going to be underwater for more than three minutes. I mean, three minutes, okay? And he gets out and people are like, oh my gosh, that, that took forever. I was freaking out. I was about to lose, you know? And, and so, I mean, to, to, to put those two experiences side by side, I mean, for, for my husband to be underwater for no more than three minutes and then to read these stories about Houdini, you know, being behind this curtain for 30, 45 minutes, an hour or more. And I'm like, wow, that, that's fascinating or, from the performer's point of view or in houdini's water tortures um he would be underwater for extended amount of time so there'd be a screen that would go up so you couldn't quite see him mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. still he would be underwater for an extended amount of time where people would just watch with bated breath wow it says something about the modern audience um yeah. and the attention span that we possess it's changed a lot so <laughs> <laughs> uh luke any questions on the life of houdini before we get into the occultism and mediumship well you and this is something that uh, Judas, you and I had spoken about a little bit before. You had mentioned how impactful Houdini's mother was, and yeah. Do you think like his passing of his mother led to a lot of his involvement within kind of mediumship? Oh yeah, um, absolutely. He loved her, and he didn't want to lose her. And just like anybody who's suffering from grief, you're going to reach out um, and try to find the answers that you want. You know, he lived in a world that's different from today. He lived in a world where spiritualism was at its peak. Mm. So the mm-hmm. claims that you could reach across, reach out and speak to somebody, just like you could pick up a telephone and call somebody across the state, um, they were very real claims that were being made. So he had no... He, on one level, had a reason to disbelieve it, because early on he did spiritualist shows where he, he reenacted a lot of the tricks yeah. that mediums were using to, uh, to fleece people of their money. And he would later call upon that when he goes into his debunking mode. Uh, but at the same time, he wanted to believe it. And it's hard to convince somebody something's not true when they want to believe it. Oh, yeah. So did yeah. he have... Um let me say predispositions to be interested in occultism before this whole, you know, death of the mother situation gets mm-hmm. him interested in spiritual. Uh, his father's a rabbi. So he grows up in a very spiritual home. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and he's living in a society where spiritualism is rampant. Yeah. So there's a couple of flags that say, yeah, you know, he's already, he has a predisposition to be like, yes, um, I grew up in a house where we talked about spirituality. Society is hyper fixated right now on communicating with the dead due to a pandemic and wars and everything that had just unfolded. And he has a personal grief where he doesn't want to lose his mother. She was sort of the rock that solidified much of his life. And I, for our audience, I, I want to be very clear. When we say spiritualism, we are talking about an American religious movement that really kicked off uh, big time in like the 1840s with the Fox sisters, um, gained a lot of popularity um, with the book, The Gates Ajar, around the 1860s. Um, you've got to keep in mind that the American Civil War was going on at this time. Everyone had lost someone. You've got a nation in grief. And spiritualism was was huge, huge, and, and also jumped the pond. I mean, it, it became a really big thing in the UK as well. Um, and that continues through the turn of the century. So, I mean, this is, this is Harry Houdini's timeline. These, these things are right there interwoven together. Because at the time of his mother's death in 1913, really only a handful of years have passed mm -hmm. from the heyday of spiritualism. Mm -hmm. Really, we're still living in the same generation there. And, and there are still, I mean, today even, you can go to spiritualist communities like Lilydale in New York or, or uh, Casadega in Florida. These places are still around. But I mean, at this time, at the, the turn of the century, early 20th century, these places were huge and they were booming and they were destinations. And I mean, so it, like... Yes, he might have had some predisposition because of his, you know, very religious, very spiritual background, but also, right, like, this is prime time for American spiritualism. And then with the loss of his mother, yes, it's it's kind of this, you know, this perfect storm, this melting pot for Houdini to, um, to become what he became and, and do the things that he did. So tell us a little bit about mom. Uh, what happens when mom dies? So mom has a stroke um, and she passes away. I think we've got some some notes here, uh, some notes between uh, Houdini and his brother Theo. Um, he, he refers to his brother Theo as Dash. That's, that's Theo's nickname. Um, one is going to come and it says something along the lines of, Dash, it's tough and I can't seem to get over it. Sometimes I feel all right, but when a calm moment arrives, it's just as bad as ever. I can write all right when I keep myself away from heart-rendering subjects, so we'll try to avoid it if possible. But I have to write to my brother once in a while about her, whom we miss, and for her, whom I feel as if my heart of hearts went with her. Um, there were accounts. Uh, some of these are maybe fictionalized by him. Um, uh, like I said at the beginning, we kind of have to see everything through this lens of um, uh, over-the-top promotion. Uh, but he would tell stories of, like, in his most desperate moments of escape, seeing visions of her, as if she was still reaching out to him. 
I mean, I think it's interesting thinking about Houdini. I mean, when you said that we have to view him through the lens of his own self-promotion, I think that's absolutely true of Helena Blavatsky and Aleister Crowley as well. In order yeah. to understand yeah. you know, the yes. quote-unquote real occultists, we need to see yeah. through some of their self-promote, some of their marketing, right? Yep. It's yep. fascinating. Okay, so so let's get into it. So then what happens with the mediums? So he gets interested in mediumship in a more active way. Is that true? Yeah, uh, he wants to reach out to her, and he's contacting a number of mediums to do this, and he is unpleased with what he's receiving because he can't get any message that he can verify is from his mother. Uh, keep in mind that for a while, him and Bess did a spirit did a uh, seance performance, so he's aware of a number of of uh, tricks that that shysters were doing in the time. Um, that's whenever he runs into Sir Conan Doyle, they form a friendship. They both have analytical minds and, um, <clears throat> Sir Doyle introduces him to his wife, Lady Doyle. Lady Doyle claimed to be a medium. She has Houdini sit down and a seance in ensues. And during that seance, uh, Lady Doyle does automatic writing. She enters into a trance. She's holding a writing utensil. And she uh, lets words flow through her that were apparently, or she claimed to be from Houdini's mother. Hmm. At the end of that, there are several accounts of this, um, some from Houdini, and so it's hard to know exactly how this came, how this, how this panned out. But apparently, something was written that could not have been said by his mother. Okay, <laughs> what what does that mean? Like only Doyle's wife would know. It it refers to. What, what was it? Um, oh, yeah. She ends the message to Houdini with, um, we rest in the arms of Christ <laughs> Jesus. Oh. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And back to the beginning, we know that his father was a rabbi. Uh, they were a very right. religious Jewish oh. family. Um, so that coupled with the physicality of the seance. So they were practicing, uh, back in the day, they practiced physical mediumship where they would do physical things to prove that the spirits were speaking through them, mm -hmm. as opposed to now we have like mental mediumship where it's just words. Um, Houdini was familiar being an illusionist with many of the practices of the physical mediums. Mm -hmm. So the things that Lady Doyle was doing um, were things that he could reproduce and that he had done himself during his own seance shows. I mean, it's worth noting here, since we're talking about Doyle, we did do an episode on Doyle. I always view Doyle as sort of like the mirror image of Houdini and his attitude towards spiritualism. Uh, Doyle, I think, lost a son, and he was yeah. wildly gullible about every every any claim anyone made to Doyle. He pretty yeah. much said, yep, yeah, that you can do that. <laughs> That's real. That's dead, people. I believe uh, it. Um, whereas no. Houdini did not feel that way. <laughs> Houdini wanted to feel that way. He and wanted it's, to. It's again hard to know if how how honestly Houdini bought into spiritualism. Because during that point, this is about a seven year period between the instance with Lady Doyle and his mother's death, where he would have been in this, um, he was looking again for reasons to be relevant in culture. Mm -hmm. Spiritualism was was peaking, and it's hard to know how much he was jumping onto the spiritualist train in order to be. Uh, in order to gain recognition there, or uh, that coupled with the loss of his mother and him wanting it to be true, or how much he heartfelt felt for it. Uh, different authors write it in different ways. Some say that yeah. Houdini's belief in it was not was never genuine. Others say that it was originally genuine and turned through the experience of Lady Doyle. Mm. Mm. 
I mean, it, going back to your history of spiritualism, we sort of have to look at it in waves. There was, um, yeah. you know, that early religious movement that the Civil War is sort of like distracted us from, but but it yeah. kept going through the 1880s. And then, like you're saying, mm-hmm. uh, there was a resurgence, particularly as we were leading up into the World Wars again, um, yeah. people got interested in popular spiritualism again. So it did have a kind of downslide in the 1890s, the Gilded Age, uh, in the mm. early part of the turn of the century. But then as a popular it sort of like was different, I think, when it came back in the 20th century. It, mm. uh, in many ways, looked a little bit more like what we have today. Like it's, uh, it was more popular entertainment. Uh, even though the religion of spiritualism persisted, that became a sort of esoteric version of mediumship, whereas the popular version, you know, what Houdini was experiencing would probably be more like stage shows. Am I right? Um, well, Houdini did several stage shows as exposés, but as far as what you would have encountered... Um... It was still at that point physical mediumship and like lowly dit chambers, if I understand correctly. Right. Yeah. They were still doing uh, like table tipping. They were still doing uh, spirit slates and that kind of thing. Yeah, physical mediumship, to my mind, um, which developed in the 1870s, is more showmanship than anything else. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Um, but, uh, you know, the, the nail got put in the coffin of physical mediumship. Mm, Houdini uh, had a big hand in that through his exposés. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like that's the reason if you go to like Lilydale now, the spiritualist city, you won't see any spiritual or any physical mediumship. In fact, they have a rule against it. I yeah, I actually did attend one workshop in Lilydale that was a uh, very light physical mediumship. You're exactly right. Um, they they most modern spiritualists will say that uh, physical mediumship is a lie. Uh, that anytime yeah. you see it, it is a fraud. Uh, I, I watched a guy try to materialize the faces of spirits on top of his face in uh, oh, ultraviolet uh, or, or red light in in red light. So oh, I've read about that. Oh my gosh, I'd love to see that in person. It was oh. it was something. But your eyes cross, staring at his face in this very low light. So it's- <laughs> <laughs> very hard to tell <laughs> uh, anyhow so uh but so you can't you can yeah you, it's there is a medium out there who's still doing it um i don't know i might have to work for that yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. a casadega medium um which you know the lilydale mediums look down on the casadega mediums but anyhow right. yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah that's a whole nother <laughs> yeah a whole other thing it's there's always the catholics and the protestants no matter where you're at right Um, but so back to Doyle. So, so we're done with the the Doyle seance didn't go so well. Then what happens? That's when Houdini returns to the U S and his, uh, campaign of anti-spiritualist referring to, you know, going so far as to refer to, um, anybody who conducts a seance as a, a vulture preying upon the morning. Um, and, this is also, I think, back to painting him as the self-promotion guru that he was. Uh, his place in motion pictures was coming to an end right at the same time. Mm. You know, he, uh, for the time, he was a movie star. There were all kinds of Houdini films. Hmm. But the, uh, the film that he was in, were going, uh, they were going out of style. Uh, talkies were coming into, into style. Mm-hmm. And Houdini, his entire life, spoke with a heavy accent. So that style of, of movie was not really available to him. So he had to pivot out of that and find another way for um, over-the-top self-promotion. Well, can you just give me a sense? What were these movies like? Was it like his stage show in a movie or no, was he playing characters? Um, it would be Houdini and the Iceman. <laughs> yeah. um, Houdini's Escape from yeah. the Pyramids. It, they're so, kind of hilarious. You can still find some of them. Uh, oh. For example, it might be Houdini going to Egypt to go see the pyramids and all of a sudden 
strange Egyptian occultists kidnap him and bury him below the pyramids. And then he has to escape. So then there would be one scene during the movie of him doing an escape stunt from whatever device he's put in. Yeah. I love it. He was not a great actor. Uh, he was <laughs> very stiff. <laughs> 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 that's fantastic okay so yeah, the movie yeah if you look up these club. movies know that you will be watching them for the lulls because <laughs> <laughs> it's a situation <laughs> and uh, not only movies no he uh, was a a literary figure as well there were a number mm -hmm. of books produced like adventure books based mm. around houdini in sort of the same format where there would be a story houdini would get put in trouble he would have to escape from something and all these uh all the houdini stories were ghosts written by hp lovecraft you're kidding oh, not at all nope wow that is so cool yep small world, <laughs> isn't it? Now i you gotta know. find those yeah that's really yep. so um in particular look at um the houdini escape from the pyramids that's the one that that's one of them that is the easiest to me to find and definitely written by hp lovecraft but oh. so were the other ones oh. uh, anyhow so his movie to career career is, is not going so well people have had enough of that shtick yeah, yeah. Talkies yeah. are in. He can't really compete there. He needs to find something else to do. So then he starts his campaign. And his campaign is going across America, town by town, exposing mediums and getting into um, very public feuds with any outstanding medium he can find, like um, famous ones in New York. He would go as far as to send people ahead into towns, and he would have those Confederates of his sit in on whatever the local medium was doing, the seance, mm -hmm. and record the, the physical medium tip that she did. So when Houdini arrived in town, he would reproduce the seance, but live on stage. Mm. And he would, usually the medium would come to the show, you know, just out of pure curiosity, the medium would come to the show in almost every town. And so mm -hmm. midway through the show, Houdini would stop the show and he would point out into the audience and you have the spotlight turned to the medium. <laughs> And he would start calling the person out yeah. live in public. Yeah. Imagine the showmanship of this. If you're yeah. there in the crowd to watch this. Yeah. Houdini's bad mouthing this person, showing their secrets. And all of a sudden he points into the audience and the, and the spotlight turns on the person he's talking about. And so like one example of this was uh, in 1924, in July of 1924, um, Houdini uh had a, a sitting with one of the the most celebrated mediums in Boston. Um, she was known as Marjorie. Uh, her name was Mina Crandon. Um, and so Houdini is convinced that she's a fake. Um, and not only does he feud with her, but wrap your mind around this. At the time, there was a scientific American panel that was charged with evaluating her gifts. So Scientific America was a uh, publication, I believe, at the time. Oh, it still is. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's why it's, it's like, it's so kind of mind boggling. And I think they had an award out that Scientific America had an award yeah. that if somebody could prove real spiritual ability, mm -hmm. that Scientific America was going to give them some absurd amount of money. So you had a mm -hmm. lot of people, mediums competing for this award. From Scientific America. Well, I mean, it's a step away from the for early days. I think there was a committee from Harvard who evaluated the Fox sisters in the in the 50s. Yeah, 1850s. yeah it's very similar. Yeah. Um, so it's just a slight step away from, you know, actual academics. Now we're now we're pop academics, right, are, are offering these prizes. So this com committee in, investigates Marjorie and um, believes that she's real. Um, 
they invite Harry on to the committee. So he's the only person that hasn't seen her yet. Um, all the other scientists have said, no, what she is doing is real. Uh, so then Harry comes in and sort of constructs a device because he knows what she's doing. He knows the tricks. So he constructs a device. It would be impossible for her to do her illusions with inside of based on how the illusions work. Okay. And sure to form when she was put in this device, she could no longer contact the spirits. Hmm. So she's like in a cabinet or something. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of imagine the cabinet. It's, it's, it's a funny looking thing. There's pictures of it out there. If you want to look up scientific American study, um, Marjorie uh, Houdini has kind of put those in Google. You'll find, it looks like a cabinet with her head sticking out <laughs> um, the top of it and her arms sticking out both sides mm-hmm. so that her arms can't touch each other. Yeah. So it, it, the arms had something to do with it then? Yeah, I don't know exactly what illusions that she was performing, um, but I know that her being restricted in this cabinet prevented her from being able to produce the messages from the spirits. So she was just doing mental oh, mediumship? Um, she was doing a physical mediumship. I think that she was producing some kind of a message, like a physical thing would oh, appear. Oh, like Blavatsky, there were letters. Yes, Um, similar. So by being in this cabinet, for some reason, the spirits couldn't give her the letters. Okay. (laughs) Yep. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So then what happens? Oh, then uh, I think the next big development in this is when Houdini goes before Congress. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, imagine this. Like, you know, if we're looking at this still through self-promotion, he's got now the biggest platform he can have. Like he is in front of, he's testifying before Congress, and he's in all the newspapers. And what is he he's on radio to with this? With does he want legislation? Like what is he looking for? So there was a senator who was putting forth legislation that uh, that outlawed doing mediumship or fortune telling for money. Okay. So they called Houdini before uh, Congress to give a talk on why all this was fraudulent and why a law needed to be passed. Hmm. And so in true showmanship form, Houdini turned it into a stage and <laughs> produced ectoplasm and did a show like on the floor of Congress. That's wonderful. Uh, what happened? Um, I believe this law died in committee somewhere. It was never made. It was never made a thing. But he was definitely spoke before Congress on the topic. There's no business like show business. And that was not long before his death. Let me think. That was. That was 1926. And he was selling his stage shows. I mean, is that, that was the product ultimately is that you would go and see him do these. The product is his name is everywhere. And so okay. you see a guy who he's, he's speaking before Congress on the topic. His name is on like radio continuously and in the newspaper continuously. And then he shows up in your town. Mm-hmm. And he's putting on a theater show. You want to go buy a ticket. Yeah. Um, and that was the point of all of it. That was the point of, uh, of, or at least uh, to, to many folks. And in my mind, that was the point of this, was to continue to make his name relevant. Wow, that is tough stuff. For example, like he would go so far as to make his name relevant. He was the first person to fly across Australia. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I kid you not. He yeah. heard somebody else was going to do it. This was at the early age of, um, of, of aviation. Of aviation. Yeah. And he hears somebody else is going to fly across Australia, local yeah. Australian. So he hurries to Australia, <laughs> buys a plane, has the word. It looks like a it's like a giant flying box. You can hardly believe this thing can fly, but it's a giant like box with yeah. Houdini written on all sides of it. Yeah. 
and he's flies. He's, he's not a, from there. He didn't live there. Nope. He just did it. He just did it to be relevant for the news. First person to fly across yeah. Australia. Yeah, I love that. Now that being said, did he pilot the craft himself? He did. Yeah. That's kind of impressive. Wild. He's it legitimately is. the first person to fly across Australia, Harry Houdini. He really did it. But he's a little bit I mean, we we get down on the Instagram influencer, but you know, he's kind of he's oh, yeah, he is. <laughs> like in every way, shape, or form. That was that was what he did. He jumps from whatever was trending at the time to the next thing in order to be relevant and put butts in the seats and sell tickets. Yeah, I hear that. He would be a monster with a smartphone. <laughs> right. <laughs> So that Twitter account would be fire because the feuds he got into with these mental with these yeah. uh, mediums were epic. You know, they called each other names, they yeah. called each other frauds, fighting uh, and curses were put on him. <laughs> it was it was the height of uh, entertaining uh, self promotion. Yeah, and he wrote a book about it. I did read his book on the subject. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, the Davenport brothers. I think uh, were near the end of their lives. He went out to visit uh-huh. the one living Davenport brother. This is my favorite chapter in the book. Oh, um, uh-huh. he goes out to visit the one living Davenport brother, and the Davenport brothers. I think never claimed to be mediums, but they let people no, they believe that they were mediums <laughs> while they were on mm-hmm. stage. Um, and the Davenport brother uh, Ira, I think, maybe said, "Yeah, no, we're not mediums. So it, it, it was all an illusion. This is how we did it." Um, he's like eighty years old. But his whole life, he had they'd never said that out loud. So Houdini writes yeah. this chapter mm. about you know going out to see him, and um, Anne Odelia Distabar was another uh, medium he featured in the book, who was just a con artist, like a horrible con artist, <laughs> who married Speak- all these rich people, took all their money. <laughs> Speaking of the Davenport brothers, are you familiar with what they did exactly? They were it was musical instruments in a cabinet, if I as I yeah, recall. Yeah, it it's what what, we, what illusionists now call spirit cabinet. Um, they would more or less one of them would go into the cabinet and get tied to a chair. Yes, yeah. and then there would be some instruments on the floor. They would close the door. All of a sudden, the instruments would start playing. They would open up the door, and the guy would still be tied to the chair. <laughs> but the instruments had played. Yep, right. the instruments had played. Everybody heard them. Obviously, the spirits must be. And you know, decades after they performed that on the on, on vaudeville circuit, um, mediums were doing the exact same thing, but claiming to be real. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, tell us a little bit about how this story ends with mediumship and and Houdini. Mm. Um, he's in a feud with a want one New York medium puts a curse on him and says, "You will die on Halloween." And that brings us back to sort of the close to the beginning of our talk um, with the situation of him getting punched in the stomach and passing away. Yeah. Now, him and his him and Bess, they had a code word because he knew as soon as he died, mediums yeah. would jump all over it and say they spoke to the spirit of Houdini. Yep. Um, so him and Bess had a code word and she knew a, a certain word that if it was said, it was Houdini. And if it wasn't said then it wasn't Houdini Um, because Houdini also promised her, this goes back to, he may have believed in spiritualism to a bit that if anybody could speak from the dead, he could do it. You know, maybe another (laughs) boasting claim to fame for a self promoter, but he claimed it. So she would every year on Halloween host a seance. And it still happens to this day. He's, he ensured that self-promotion through the ages um now she only did it for a handful of years yeah and after those years were done she said it's done he has not contacted me i have lost him forever oh now an interesting fact on that final seance um there was a huge thunderstorm that broke out 
And according to all reports, the thunderstorm just took place over the house and nowhere else where the where the seance was being conducted. It may be completely irrelevant, but it's a nice part of the story. It is. Yeah, it's a nice detail. <laughs> and so now it carries on, though. And yes, now there was a little phase there where Bess, you know, she married somebody after Houdini. Uh, she married a spiritualist. She married a, 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 um, a medium. And she claimed during that time that Houdini had contacted her. Again, self-promotion. Um, mm -hmm. she's, she's not a fool either, and she understands staying relevant. Mm -hmm. Now, she went back on that a few years later, and she said that didn't happen. Hmm. Interesting. I feel like in good conscience, you couldn't go forth accepting or you know putting that as the truth, especially given the nature of Houdini and Lady Doyle's seance when he attempted to reach out to his mother and uh, <laughs> learning that she maybe she was Christian in the afterlife or <laughs> more realistically <laughs> that it was not his mother. So leading, uh, leading people astray in that context just for the sake of personal gain. Yeah, yeah she had, resonated she, with her that well. It, it couldn't have. And that was what Houdini spoke out about his entire life was yeah. that... It is the way that they are preying upon those who are suffering is what is what makes these mediums unethical. Okay. It's not the fact that they are trying to do this. It's not the fact that they may be speaking to the dead. It's it's that they are fleecing people of their money. Yeah. So, I mean, in the case of Mrs. Doyle, I mean, I sort of like I pity her a little bit in this scenario because it's conceivable from my work with mediums that she could have been communicating something genuine and then she just got in her own way and said the wrong thing and maybe houdini was talking to his mother who knows right so i feel like there's a place in automatic writing where perhaps she thought something was going on now if she was practicing physical mediumship in my understanding of illusions there's no way you can accidentally do spiritual mediumship and not know that it's fake right right <laughs> if you found a way to to fake it yeah then then yes so if the reports that about the because it's unclear exactly what unfolded here there's two there's two stories one of them is the automatic writing and i can see how lady doyle may have duped herself mm -hmm. or may have been got in her own way as you said um that's an excusable mm, perhaps mistake if she was practicing the physical mediumship that houdini was familiar with and would have immediately saw as a fraud mm -hmm. um that's less of a mistake and has to be done intentionally so i mean you you're both uh illusionists mm -hmm. uh and a mentalist right you, you do a mentalist act yes um, we do yeah let me dig in a little bit on a couple of things that uh i have endeavored in in my career to try to understand we'll start with the physical mediumship that has baffled me uh and that's <laughs> table tilting and yep. i have read a variety of magicians um, explanations of table tilting. I think James Randi, basically James Randi, took yeah, Houdini's yeah. whole shtick and, and did it all yeah. over again <laughs> on Johnny yep. Carson. <laughs> yeah, with, with Yuri Geller, right? right like, right. yeah, oh. playing um, out the, the same thing. But so having sat in on table tilting seances, I found Randy's explanation for famous table tilters to be a little bit lackluster. It just didn't ring true for me, um, hmm. in part because I've seen mediums get up from the table as the table continues to tilt. Uh, sure. Okay. So during our theatrical seances, we do table tilting. Mm -hmm. um, and we do it as illusionists. Whenever we do a theatrical seance, we tell our audience before they buy a ticket that we are illusionists. Oh. Illusionist. We give this talk. We let yeah. them know that everything that's going to happen is under our control. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then from that point on, we conduct it as if it's earnest. And cool. then at the end, we once again remind them that everything they experienced was an illusion. Now, early on in the evening, I perform table tilting. I, I at first start out sitting at the table with them. Uh-huh. And I allow it to to proceed. Um, and then I t- remove my hands from the table and allow them to conduct it without my touching it. Um, I will tell you in the table that I use, it is very specifically constructed to have a very certain balance. Ah, interesting. Mm-hmm. So once you get it started, it just sort of goes on its own. Mm. Um, well, it makes it very easy to fall into idio, uh, idiomotor motion. But it's not going to levitate. No, it won't levitate. Um, I can make it levitate if I'm sitting at the table. Ah, interesting, interesting. I can. I would not be able to make it levitate without me sitting there. That doesn't mean there's not ways to do it, because I can think of some just in our show. It wouldn't levitate unless I was sitting at it, but then I could settle it back down and stand up from the table, and it would still do the proper tilting and give messages. So the table itself is doing the work. Yes. Um, The table itself is doing a lot of the work as far as complementing the idiomotor motion to make the tilting and messages come through. Mm -hmm. I'm doing the work as far as the levitation would come. There's another device involved. So the audience is fooling themselves in some way. Uh, Yes. A lot of what goes on in both mentalism and um, a a stage seance is going to rely on the minds of the sitters. Mm-hmm. So let's get into the mentalism side of this. Um, John Edward, I think, most famously uh, would collect data uh, about his uh, audience. <laughs> uh, and then he yeah. would play a fishing game. And uh, I mean, there were two ways I think John Edward, Jonathan Edward, uh, achieved his mentalism trick. I mean, for listeners who aren't familiar, Google the man. You're going to get the Protestant. Uh, <laughs> from like yeah. the 18th century, but then yeah. also this medium. Um, and there were his, the two tricks that he was accused of uh, were the one where he would just collect information about you. You'd fill out a card mm-hmm. on your way in. The other one was fishing, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which modern mediums also are, are very down on, which is just when you look into the audience and say, does anybody know a guy named John? And yeah, when he's played statistics. <laughs> somebody's going to know a guy named yeah, oh, John. So uh, was he, you know, tallish, short? He was a shortish tall. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to go yeah. well for you eventually. Yeah. Classic. So that's, you know, that's what Jonathan Edward has been discounted for. Um, but w- what would it take for you as a mentor? I don't, you know, I know as a magician, you don't want to give away your secrets, so I don't want to go there. But what would it take for you to be persuaded by a medium uh, that they're mm. not just performing an illusion? Um, it would be really simple. And, you know, like I've been to Lilydale and I sat through some of the people who are considered to be the best, like the, the, the president of their like of their college of mediums. Mm-hmm. Um, and I asked for one thing and it's just to tell me something personal that isn't on social media. Okay. Tell me something very personal that isn't in publicly known. Yeah. How does that Which go? Is hard. <laughs> does that go well? Yeah. No, it didn't. <laughs> Um, he told me the name of a friend who had passed, but that friend's name again is on social media. He couldn't tell me anything about the details or how we were connected. Okay. Um, it went poorly enough that he gave me my money back. Oh no. Oh wow. (laughs) Yeah. My goodness. Um, and I don't think I've got a very high threshold. 
I just want to know something that I that I am sure is not public knowledge. That seems like a quite fail-safe way to approach it, though. Right. Yeah. So you've heard nothing uh, at Lilydale then that has impressed you? Unfortunately not. I went to Lilydale with really high hopes. Being a mentalist, um, I wanted to see how I thought the people who might be the best in the world at this do it. Mm -hmm. And the level that I saw was very disappointing. So do you think that they are performing a kind of mentalism or? I believe many of them are performing a stage act that they believe themselves. I believe many of them are fishing and they think that they are connecting with spirits. I see. And so I want to go back to something that the hub said earlier, and we have experienced this ourselves. It's you are not going to convince someone of something that they don't already want to believe. That is true of Houdini. That's true of uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. That's true of our audience, even in our own Victor our theatrical Victorian seances. We begin the evening saying, hello, welcome. Uh, this is a theatrical uh, Victorian seance. We are using many of the same methods that we know uh, performers <laughs> used in the late 1800s and around the turn of the century. We're going to reenact then this as though it were in earnest, right? We do the thing at the end of the show. We remind them again that we are magicians and illusionists. And we even say, if you later see someone who is, you know, doing these same effects and telling you that they are sincere, remember that you saw a magician do the same thing, right? So we're, we're basically saying, please don't let yourself be hoodwinked. And even after all of that, we have had people, like we had a woman once who had to leave the seance because she literally just started crying because she was convinced that it was her mother, like her mother had just passed and she was convinced that her mother was speaking to her through the cards on the table. You know what I mean? Like I've had so many people come up to us after these seances and just say, you know, how amazing it was. And and so that's the same at Lilydale, you know, like we had a certain experience, but there were people there who had a great time. You know, they were like, I know that was my grandfather speaking to me. Right. So it's, it's really about the people who are sitting there. Mm-hmm. So much of it is in the minds of your audience. And and I think for us, like, that is a big difference between, like, something we had talked about uh, was, you know, is there a difference between mediumship and mentalism? And I think to some point, uh, some of the techniques are different. I think there are many overlapping techniques. But I think ultimately... If you go to a mentalist show, if someone's calling themselves a mentalist, they are a magician. And generally, the audience knows they are consenting to going to see a magic show. But if someone's calling themselves a medium, then the audience is not necessarily aware and consenting that they are going to a magic show, right? Mm -hmm. Um I, so I think those are some of the biggest differences there. 
I hope all that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> that was all yeah absolutely. Yeah. Even during our mind reading show, our mentalist show, um, you know, we're at a festival, we're doing mind reading at a festival, and I'll have people yeah. in the middle of the show stand up and start saying, hallelujah. Amen. Yeah, that's happened. That's real. Um, because people believe what they want, what to, they believe. want to believe, uh, even if you try to dissuade them otherwise. We see that in modern politics and conspiracy theories all the time. We'll Ooh. see that people will believe the thing that they want, regardless of facts presented in front of them. That Jesus is talking to you? I don't understand. Why are they saying hallelujah? I don't know. I don't know, man. <laughs> okay. I don't know. To be but clear, do on, our, on our show banners, it's actually a devil whispering in his ear. So I don't know. But they still say hallelujah. <laughs> they do. I mean, and ultimately what you're both performing is a f kind of cold reading, right? You're, you're reading people. No. Oh, okay. um, I have many techniques that go that are pre-show techniques that are mm -hmm. uh, live that are happening during the show. Um, things that are um, dual, uh, what magicians call dual reality, mm -hmm. that the person that I'm reading understands this being said and one and is one way, the rest of the audience understands it another way. And it looks way more impressive to the rest of the audience. Oh, interesting. There's, there's, a, there, there's a lot going on during any of our shows. Some of it's very low tech, some of it's very high tech. Hmm. Yeah. So, um, Maybe let me put it to you this way: If if uh, I brought you into a room and said, you know, there's somebody, there's a person on the other side of a, you know, a, that wall, can you tell me something about that person? Can you? No. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but a medium no. would no, claim that they might be able to. Say again. A medium might make the claim that they could. Correct. Yes. 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 And that's yes. the difference. Is I, I, I cannot. I, I do not possess any powers. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, not to take anything away from you, Judas, uh, I think that's amazing. I mean, the, the ability to um, convince an audience in, in that scenario. I'm always amazed by mentalists. Uh, I think it's a really uh, fascinating and uh, high level intellectual skill. So, uh, neat. <laughs> not only that, but convincing them after you've kind of put forth that disclaimer at the beginning of yeah. your performance. Yes. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah, exa exactly. Exactly. It's very interesting. So, I mean, we do have a lot of supernatural believers out there. Where are you to fall on that? Or is there supernaturalism in this life, in this world, on this plane? Oh, that's that's such a great question. So I actually, I, I touched on this topic uh, just last weekend out here at the festival. Um, and and actually, it, it was in in a conversation where, where Lily Dale had also come up, and I was talking about you know how how we had gone there specifically as magicians and illusionists, right? Like for us, this was like a homework assignment, and like we're coming in in a very specific way, right? With like a specific context and and looking at these things. Um, but I, I also, I said in that conversation, and I want to say now that just because my husband and I are magicians and illusionists, and we do create a lot of these things, that doesn't necessarily mean that I don't believe at all, you know, that, that none of these uh, kinds of uh, supernatural things are possible. Because of my family background, um, I have grown up my whole life with my mother um, experiencing things that really cannot be explained, you know, outside of her personal experience 
experience. And that's, that's within her family as well. You know, and so like one example I give is um, my, my mother has two siblings and one of them has already passed. uh, And that was her brother. And so um, every year, my uncle visits his sisters, my mother and my aunt, uh, on his birthday in different ways. He, he was much closer with my aunt when, when they were alive, you know, than, than my mother. So she generally gets, you know, like a full vision, right? Whereas my mom will just usually like smell him or, you know, sense him or something, right? And, and she's got so many of these kinds of stories. So I, I want to be clear that like, I do think people experience things that we cannot explain. And so I'm, I'm not personally one of those people that like, you know, thinks everyone is a fraud. I just know that there are magicians and illusionists out there too. Yeah. Um, I can tell several stories of interesting happenings at our theatrical seances that I don't have explanations yeah. for. Um, That's true. I'd also want to say that, just because wigs exist, that doesn't disprove the existence of hair. Ah, I like yeah. that. I like that. Uh, I happen to make wigs, so I can identify them very easy. But sure, people also, can grow their own hair. Um, okay, yeah. So a few stories. What was that? Regale us. Okay. Um, one example, I start out most theatrical seances by an item that I call a tripendulum. It's more or less a, a stick that I hold horizontally with three pocket watches dangling from it and it's an old magic trick and i have the pendulums all move in different directions at the same time with me holding my arms still and i use that to show that there are spirits here moving the pendulums um one time in particular i called out to the spirits to move the pendulum and just the chain snaps and the pendulum falls Ooh. and i go oh hmm, okay um another time it was during uh, glass moving, so say it's a predecessor to the Ouija board, more or less. I've got alphabetic uh, cards with, with letters scattered around the table. Everybody has a there's an upside down wine glass in the middle. Everybody touches the wine glass. The wine glass moves around, sort of like a Ouija board. Uh, at one point, we're doing that, and it spells out a name, and I think nothing of it. Then that group leaves, and I have another group come down the stairs for the next show. And during the next show, those two groups don't overlap, but the same name is spelled out. Whoa! So. That's a neat one. That is a neat one. Um, another one, the finale of our show takes place in absolute darkness. So everybody's around the table. We all have our hands held. It's completely dark. In order for me to do that, I've got to usually like take light bulbs out and you know make the building proper for complete darkness. Uh-huh. So one time I'm getting the show ready beforehand. I take a light bulb out. I put it on a chair. I walk over. I flip off a light. And then I hear ding, ding, ding. And I turn the light back on. And the light bulb had like somehow left the chair and was on the other corner of the room. Now, you know, the way light bulbs are shaped, they can't roll. They can only like move in a circle, right? They can't roll across a room. Um, so uh, situations like that. Um, so we've had a number of things that have been unexplainable that have c- occurred during or right around theatrical seances. So it's conceivable the spirits are messing with you. <laughs> Maybe so. They may, they may not <laughs> like me uh, pretending to talk to them. Right, right. Oh, I mean, there's some occultists out there, our chaos magicians, I think, uh, uh, maybe believe that uh, if you, you fake it till you make it, maybe uh, you, you guys are so engaged in the, the faking of it that uh, you might be doing a little bit of the making of it. Well, <laughs> maybe so. Um, I don't have. You're I don't magic, have. Baby. Yeah, really. I don't really have evidence one way or another on it, but I do know those were strange happenings. <laughs> right. Yes, indeed. Uh, any last thoughts, Luke? Any last questions? 
No, I mean, I'm just thankful for the opportunity to speak with you guys. Yeah. Oh, you're oh, welcome. We're happy you. to be on and chat. Thank you so yeah, much. This is a very cool conversation. Anything you want to, our audience to know about where they can find you, where they can uh, connect with you? Yeah, uh, so you can find us at judasandmagnolia.com. That's Judas like the apostle and Magnolia like the tree. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and TikTok. We're mostly lurking, but we're there. We are there. Um, so yeah, reach out to us. We, we love connecting with fans all across the country and around the world. Very cool. Very cool. Thank you both. Uh, I echo Luke. This was a very fun conversation. Excellent conversation. Uh, I think eye opening and uh, insightful. And uh, yeah, just a delight talking to you both. Oh, Thanks our pleasure. So much, Thank you. Guys. That's Judas and Magnolia. My name's Dr. Rob C. Thompson, joined by Luke Kinneman, as always, in the interview chair. Luke, say goodbye to the good people. Bye bye. We'll catch you next time here on the Call Confessions.